blasphemer here in the third ring of the seventh circle of hell amongst the violent. A blasphemer, somebody who didn't follow their church orders, right? Nope. Somebody who wrote a treatise against God? Nope. Somebody much stranger than that. I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we slow walk passage by passage through Dante's comedy. And we are here in Canto 14 at lines 43 through 75. We are amongst the violent, and in this ring of the violent, the violent against God, we have come to the worst of the worst. Those who try to commit violence against God, which you might say, how exactly do you do that? I got some answers for you. If you want to go back and see the previous passages, I would recommend it to get here. Otherwise, we're diving in and we're finding our first blasphemer here stretched out on the burning sands of the third ring of the seventh circle. Lines 43 through 75 of Canto 14. I began, Master, you who conquer everything except for those difficult demons who blocked our entrance into the gate back up there? Who is that grandiose one who seems as if he doesn't care about the fire, who lies there so disdainful of the pain as if the precipitation doesn't ripen it? And that very one himself, who was made aware that I had questioned my guide about him, hollered, Whatever I was when I lived, the same am I dead. May Jove tire out that craftsman of his from who he, enraged, grabbed the jagged thunderbolt that ran me through at the end, and even if it exhausts all the others time after time in the black forge of Montebello, crying out, Good Vulcan, help me, help me, just as he did at the Battle of Flegra, and shoots at me with all his power, he still won't be able to make a happy vendetta out of it. At which my guide spoke so forcefully that I'd never heard him talk so loudly. Oh, Capaneus, since your top-shelf pride isn't drowned out, you're punished all the more. No tribulation except her own white-hot rage could ever compete with your fury. Then he turned to me with better lips, saying, That was one of the seven kings who laid siege to Thebes. He had the audacity to hold God in disdain, and seems to still do so. But as I told him, his ranting is the only medal his chest deserves. Now take up the rear, and be careful that you don't set your feet on the smoldering sand, but hold them back so that they're closest to the wood. So there's our blasphemer crying out on the sand, stretched out with the fire falling on him. And we want to talk a lot about exactly who this is. But before we get to Capaneus, let's just start the passage through and see what it says. It begins, I began, Master, you who conquer everything except those difficult demons who blocked our entrance into the gate back up there. I'm smiling. My gosh, poor Virgil. Here he's coming in for some ribbing from our pilgrim. The pilgrim turns and sees these figures laid out on the ground. One of them appears to be very loud and apparently very large. And he says, who's that? But before I ask you who that is, let me remind you that you failed once before. <laughs> You conquer everything except for those difficult demons who blocked our entrance into the gate up there. What's going on here? 
we can go back to our old anxiety of influence answer, right? We can say that the poet is ribbing the old Latin poet, his master, Virgil, in the way that students often rib their masters. You know, you did okay on, I don't know, you're in a math class, you did okay on the theorem, Stephen Hawking, until you got to that differential equation right there. And then, well, remember how much trouble that one gave you? As if you, (laughs) so ridiculous, as if you came at Stephen Hawking during a math lecture or a physics lecture and reminded him that he couldn't solve an equation a while back. That's one way to do it. The typical, you know, Freudian anxiety of influence, the student is always trying to overcome the teacher, overcome the father figure, etc. Maybe. But don't forget, too, we are here amongst those who try to do violence against God, the blasphemers. And maybe there's something here about this that connects to that. Maybe there's a way in which you can't blaspheme against Virgil. You can't blaspheme against this text you hold so dear and this poet you hold in such honor. There's no way to commit violence against him in the way that the blasphemers attempt it against God. And I think that might be sitting back here. I think it might be the reason the pilgrim needs to voice that Virgil can't do everything right. This isn't as if taking on God. This is taking on your poetic father. And By the way, you can't commit blasphemy against the Aeneid. I only wish that certain people held the same attitude toward Dante's comedy. This also is not a sacred text. I find this a text with problems in it, but still the greatest work of Western literature. The greatest work of Western literature doesn't mean it's non-problematic. So in the same way, I would like to model Dante's attitude toward Virgil here as I turn back to my master, Dante, and question him, especially in this passage, about just what are you up to? Moving on. The pilgrim asks, who is that grandiose one? You could translate this in lots of ways. Who is that grand one, that giant? I think Hollander translates it as a hero. Who is that hero? It seems a little strong to me, hero, but maybe. Who is that grandiose one who seems as if he doesn't care about the fire, who lies there so disdainful of the pain as if the precipitation doesn't ripen it? Who is it? Ah, it's Capaneus, as we will discover. In the passage itself, Virgil will actually name him. Who is Capaneus? Capaneus is one of the giants. Uh, I believe the word that Statius uses in the Thebiad is magnanimitas. That is giant, large figure. He is one of the figures who storm the walls of Thebes. He comes at the walls of Thebes to overthrow Jove and lots of others. I believe, as I remembered in the Thebiad, that Mercury is there and maybe Dionysus too. They're up on the walls and all of these figures, these giant, uh, demonically giant figures are laying siege to Jove's great city of Thebes. And they start to climb the walls and Job grabs a thunderbolt and basically annihilates Capaneus. And Capaneus is extraordinarily prideful. He thinks he can take on Jove. He thinks he can win against Jove in this castle. Right now, what I would like to focus on is his size. This is the first 
true giant we've encountered. There have been large figures. I assume that Cerberus is pretty big. I assume that Plutus is larger than a human, but this is actually our first true giant in hell. And the reason I bring this up, this giant figure lying on the sand, Capaneus, is because giants will become more and more important to us. And while I don't want to linger on this very long, I just want to set it here that this is our first real giant and that we're going to encounter more. They're going to get thicker in the text as we go forward. And as we go forward and encounter more giants, we should always keep Capaneus in our head. In fact, this passage is actually going to be referred to further on down the line in Inferno. So it's important to remember this is the first of our giants. There are going to be bigger giant figures coming all the way down to the very center of hell. Here it starts. The passage goes on. Capaneus apparently hears our pilgrim, hears him say, who's that one that seems so disdainful of the pain, reminding us of Ferenata in some way. We kind of catch that glimpse of Ferenata, the disdain for the torments of hell, except this seems very different. Ferenata seems human. Capaneus isn't human. Capaneus is actually a classical figure out of mythology who is attacking the walls of Thebes in order to overthrow Jove. This is really the first big speech out of a classical figure. We've seen others. We've seen Helen. We've seen her up in amongst the lustful. We've seen other classical figures, but this is the first time we've really settled on one and that one has really had a voicing and a personality. And Capaneus starts out, whatever I was when I lived, the same am I dead. In other words, I'm the de death didn't change me. I'm still the guy who thinks he can overthrow Jove. And then he goes on, may Jove tire out that craftsman he means Vulcan, of his, from whom he, enraged, grabbed the jagged thunderbolt that ran me through at the end. I still think I can take on Jove, even though I'm stretched out here, spread eagle on a burning plane with fire falling on me. It doesn't matter. Bring Jove on, and I'll still take him down. <laughs> this guy's got serious ego control, seriously centered ego control, that he still thinks he could do this, even here. May Jove tire out his craftsman Vulcan, making more and more thunderbolts. And even if he exhausts all the others, and what he means here is all the Cyclops who were kind of Vulcan's helpers. May he wear out Vulcan, all the Cyclops, all of them in those forges, time after time, in the black forges of Monchibello. Monchibello is a reference to Etna. It's two words pushed together. It's Mons from Latin, Mons from mountain, and it's Jabal from Arabic, meaning mountain. So it's as if Mongibello is a uh, mountain mountain. But what it refers to in this case in the Florentine is Etna. So there, you know, he pictures Jove as helpless. Oh, here's the, the lead god, helpless, saying, good Vulcan, help me, help me, you know, hurry, hurry in those forges. I, you got to get me a lightning bolt so I can knock Capaneus down, just as he did at the Battle of Flegra. Uh, this is the moment when Jove defeated the Titans. Over and over again, Capaneus is just saying, Jove is a windbag, and he's always needing help. He's needing help against the Titans. He's needing help against me at Thebes. Just a total windbag. He shoot, Even if he does all of that and shoots at me with all his power, Capaneus says, he still won't be able to make a happy vendetta out of it. Vendetta allegra. 
That seems to be the root of the problem right there. We've already seen vendetta in Canto 14. But it seems as if this adding of the word allegra, happy, joyful, a joyful vendetta out of it, is what Capneus thinks he can accomplish. It's not that he thinks he can rob Jove of his ability to knock Capneus out. He thinks he can rob the pleasure out of doing it. Can he? Oh, let's look on. At which, after Capneus says this, my guide, Virgil, spoke so forcefully that I never heard him talk so loudly. And we should just stop and say, why is Virgil so agitated right here? I mean, Virgil lives amongst the damned in limbo. He's been down this way before because of Eric, though. We know all of this from his backstory. It's interesting. He says, oh, Capneus, since your top shelf pride, top shelf pride, your best pride, your your number one pride isn't drowned out, you're punished all the more. Now, it's a commonplace to say that in Inferno, pride is punished in every circle. That has become a commentary commonplace. And yet, it still jumps out when we see it, since we don't have a specific circle of pride. It seems as if Capaneus's pride in himself, as I say, his fully centered ego, thinking he could take down Joe, it seems like that's the problem here. And Virgil seems to react in forceful, loud ways that we don't actually get out of Virgil. Some people claim that Virgil is acting out of irritation from the pilgrims tweaking him back up at the top of the passage we started with today. Maybe. I tend to think there's something here about Capneus and his unbelievable willful stance toward the gods that makes Virgil very unhappy. He says, your top shelf pride isn't drowned out. You're punished all the more. No tribulation except your own white hot rage could ever compete with your fury. In other words, most of your torment is from you. You're doing it. Your your rage is as hot as this snowfall falling on you. And then Virgil turns to the pilgrim. The actual words are with better lips. What it means, what it means is he says it more kindly. He's not loud. Uh, maybe we would say he turned to me with a with a kinder face. We might say in English, he turned to me with a kinder face. But it's still an emphasis on lips, on the speech of what's going on. So it's an emphasis on the different tone in which Virgil now speaks to the pilgrim, saying. That was one of the seven kings who laid siege to Thebes, which I've told you about. He had the audacity to hold God in disdain and seems to do so still. But as I told you, his ranting is the only medal his chest deserves. And there's a kind of joke going on here, right? That this guy thought he was such a great military leader that he could actually strike Jove down from the walls of Thebes. And in the end, the only award medal this guy gets is just his ranting. It's a very snarky way to put it, that it all comes to naught. And then Virgil says, take up the rear and come along. We'll talk about that in a minute. There's several things I want to say about this, but I want to say something structurally about it that's very interesting. When Virgil condemns Capaneus, your top shelf pride isn't drowned out, you're punished all the more, the rhymes, the words used as the rhymes in the tercet, in the tercerima, are exactly the same words used in Canto 7, lines 5, 7, and 9, for Plutus, when Virgil puts Plutus down. Here, it's lines 65, 67, and 69, if you want to look at the Florentine. Back in Canto 7, when Virgil puts Plutus down for his crazy rage, it's in lines 5, 7, and 9, and they're the same words rhyming. 
In other words, there is a way in which this passage is linking back to enraged Plutus and the way that Virgil puts him down. And furthermore, when Virgil turns back to our pilgrim with the kinder face or the better lips, those rhymes right there inside the Terzerima, the same words are rhyming here in lines 68, 70, and 72 that occurred in Canto 8 at lines 47, 49, and 51 when Filippo Argenti was put down for his rage in the river Styx amongst the wrathful. So there is a linking here between these two enraged figures, Filippo Argenti and Plutus and Capaneus, because of the rhyme. We haven't talked much about this so far in the podcast. Walking with Dante, we will talk more about it, particularly when we get up to Purgatorio. We'll talk much more about it. But there's a way that Dante uses same word rhymes. So three words that rhyme here, and they're the exact same three words that rhyme in a later passage. He uses it as a linking structural device to call your attention back and forward to them. Basically, what I'm telling you is Look how unbelievably constructed this poem is. Just stand back at it and look at it for a second and think, holy crow, not only do I have all kinds of references to the Roman poet Statius and his story about the siege of Thebes, but I've even got here rhyming sequences that link back to other enraged figures in Inferno who we've already met, thereby linking all this rage and put down of that rage together. Do you see how complicated this is? Do you see why this takes a brain far larger than mine to construct? Good grief. Okay, so let's ask the real question. Why is Capaneus an exemplum for blasphemy? These are those who strove to do violence against God. Why isn't it some monk or some philosopher or some, um, I don't even know, some pope who was defrocked? Why isn't it any of those? Or (laughs) if you know this story, why isn't the pope who was thrown in the bag and once he was dead and thrown into the Tiber? You can go look that story up about the insane trial of the corpse of a pope. But why isn't one of these figures the big blasphemers? Why is it Capaneus, a classical figure out of Roman poetry? And particularly, why is he the blasphemer when we know from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, verses 31 and 32, that blaspheming against God is the deadliest of all sins? There in the Gospels, it is seen as the dire sin that is unforgivable. Why is it a classical figure that gets this Christian condemnation? I have a couple answers to this, but let's go back. Let's go back to Canto 11, when Virgil is mapping out hell at lines 46 through 48. Virgil explains the various layers of the violent, those who do the murdering, those who do commit suicide, and those who commit blasphemy. And when he gets down to the blasphemers, here's what it says. A person can also use force against the deity when we deny or commit outright blasphemy in the heart and also by respect disrespecting nature and its beneficence. So the smallest ring seals, that's where we are, the smallest ring seals, with its signet, both Sodom and Cahor, as well as those who get violent against God in their hearts and their tongues. We should just remember that passage. Virgil was very clear to line it out for us. So blasphemy is not 
atheism. It's not agnosticism. It's not that Capaneus doesn't believe Jove exists. He completely believes Jove exists. That's why he's assailing him. This is instead a kind of overwhelming emotional response to the deity. Go back to that passage from Canto 11. It's blasphemy in the heart. Some overwhelming emotional response that causes you to want to strike out at the deity. That seems to be the root of the problem. Atheism is an intellectual problem. This is rage against God, rage such that you actually think you can take down God. It's not necessarily trying, I don't think, to replace God because Satan's not here. Let's say that your husband, wife, kid, I don't know, somebody dear to you, got a terrible cancer diagnosis, and you suddenly felt this rage toward God. Let's say you believed in God, and you felt this rage, like, why did you do this to me? Why did you, why do I have to bear this? That's a pianissimo version of this fortissimo version that's going on here. So that does seem to be the problem, but yet there's a deeper problem in here. How is Jove God in a Christian context. How is that? Capaneus says, may Jove tire out that craftsman of his. Capaneus says it's Jove. But when Virgil turns back to the pilgrim, he says that was one of the seven kings who laid siege to Thebes. He had the audacity to hold God in disdain. Not a word that falls out of Virgil's mouth easily. How is Jove God in a very Christian poem? And don't forget, Dante doesn't think that Jove is God. Because remember when Virgil introduces himself in Canto 1, when he appears as Dante's falling back down the slope, and Virgil says, you know, I was alive during the time of the false and lying gods. Virgil himself says that those gods were not true. How are they suddenly true here? How is wanting to take on Jove the same as wanting to take on God in a Christian context? Is it that it's just a matter of your perspective? Is that what's going on here? So taking on God in a uh, mythic context here, a Roman mythic context, is the same thing as taking on God in a Christian context? If that's the case, then the poem just got much more complicated and much more syncretic. It got where it's fusing the classical and the Christian, which it is. That's my next point, is that syncretism, that attempt to build a bridge between the classical and the Christian world. And it seems like this passage about blasphemy, which is the last place you would expect it, you would expect this passage about blasphemy, that most Christian of sins, you would expect this passage to have some figure in it who was terribly blasphemous, who, I don't know, wrote a treatise and, and made fun of God in some way. But you have a classical figure? What is Dante doing I'm not going to have a lot of answers. Let me just say that I think the passage is problematic, and I bring it to your attention because, yes, there's lots of ways you can skid right past this thing and say, oh, that's nice. You know, <laughs> there's here's Capaneus. He's stretched out. He wanted to take on Thebes, and, you know, he's bound up here and, well, bound up. He's bound out, stretched out here for his blasphemy. So, you know, there it is. But if you really think about it, it gets harder. Because how is Jove God? And how is the classical world Christian? And is Dante claiming that the classical world holds the seeds of Christianity? If so, that's dangerous ground to play on if this our most Christian poet 
is claiming that? I think he might be if he's claiming that. Or is it that he needs a mythic figure to take on God? Who else would dare to do this, especially in a medieval context? Is that it? Does our poet need a figure this big willing to take on God? It's all very interesting, and it all goes back to the opening of Canto 14, I think. Let me go back and read you that the opening lines. And they come out of the wood and they see this giant plain in front of them. And the poet kind of explains the geography of what the pilgrim's seeing. And then all of a sudden, the poet offers these three lines. And I stopped on them and I want to repeat them. O vendetta of God, how much you should make everyone who's reading this tremble because what was made manifest before my eyes. And I want to tell you that I skipped over what I'm about to say because I wanted to save it for now. In the early commentary on comedy, those three lines, all of that have got, oh, vengeance of God, make everybody tremble when you know what I'm going to see. The commentators flipped over it. They thought it was a mistake in the text, not because the poet stepped out and said it, but because it seems as if the poet is saying that I, by my actions, can make God do something. I, by my actions of blasphemy, can make him react to me. And if I can make God react to me, then God is not the unmoved mover. Then suddenly God is not so transcendent. God is responsive to me. The early commentators were all over those three lines saying, Basically, this is bad theology. It's terrible theology to claim that somehow God's vendetta is brought about because of this blasphemy that's going to come up on this plane because you can't provoke a reaction out of God. The answer is we are all born in original sin. We're all doomed to hell. God is saving those who God chooses to save. The end of the matter. And those punished in the way that they're punished, end of the matter. You didn't provoke God to punish you. Because if you can cause God to act, that means God is not, well, transcendent. And it also means God is responsive to me. And this is a problem in the Middle Ages. Why? Because of the rise of the cults of the relics. And I know that there are no relics in this passage, but this is what relics were. They were a way to influence God. When you brought out the arm of St. Martin, let's say, and you paraded it through the streets and people fell down in front of it in the Middle Ages and prayed to it and prayed to be healed, they were using that relic as a way to nudge God to do something. In a strictly Thomistic, St. Thomas Aquinas, Thomistic Orthodox context, that's impossible. You can't prod God to do anything. But the rise of relics in the early Middle Ages and toward the Middle Middle Ages, the rise of relics causes God's nature in theology to start to change, and God becomes responsive because I go and I pray at the shrine of, I don't know, a lock of the hair of the virgin or the robe of the virgin. Uh, the claim was that the Virgin Mary tore out some of her hair at the tomb and that this hair was found by the crusaders in the sepulcher. They brought it back, and there are all instances of hair across, especially nor 
Northern Europe of the virgin's hair. Okay, and so I go and pray at it, and then God forgives my sins. God does certain things. Popes granted you indulgences for making pilgrimages to relics, all of which means you're influencing God. You're making God move. And that seems to be the root of this passage. It starts with this idea that God's vendetta is brought about because of the blasphemy. And it comes down to this moment in which somebody thinks that they can lay siege to God. All dancing around this giant question of whether God can be moved. That, the passage gets crabbed in classical references, in references in the earlier episode of this podcast to Albert Magnus, in references to the New Testament, in references to Guido Cavalcanti. And here with Cabaneus is our chief blasphemer, not even a Christian. We shouldn't be surprised that there's a little bit of waviness in this passage because it's a huge question. If you come out of a Thomistic tradition, how is it that you make the unmoved mover move? Giant question that has barked the shins of many a theologian. It's not going to bark our shins anymore because we're going to pass on to the next passage. We've come to the dead middle of Canto 14, and Canto 14 breaks in half. It has this part in which we come up on Capaneus, stretched out on the sands. And then there's a second half of this canto, a back half. And it's often been seen as a canto that is ill at ease with itself, that its first half is not related to its second half. But I'm going to argue in the next few podcasts that they are intimately related. They have a lot to do with getting the divine to move, and they have a lot to do with each other in mirroring sequences. So come back, subscribe to the podcast, catch the next one. It's going to be also about great giant figures, just not Capaneus, another one. Subscribe to the podcast, like it, rate it. I would really appreciate that. I hope you're enjoying the walk as much as I am. I am having so much fun doing this, and I hope you are too. This is so luxurious to be able to do this, to be able to explore the comedy slowly. I hope you're having a good time, and I hope that you will interact with me, because unlike the divine, I am reactive. So social media on twitter on facebook on instagram and i will react right back to you no theological problems whatsoever i'm mark scarborough and this is the podcast walking with dante